Section 16 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Section 16 Syriac's Pony A Story of School Days. Lockport, November 2nd, 18 blank. My dear Jack, your letter has gone unanswered for a long time, but, to tell the truth, I haven't felt like writing letters lately. I've been all mixed up. You said in your letter that Bert Sawyer had written you that there had been a bit of a rumpus in school, and that Bob Morrison and I had been mixed up in it, and you wanted to know all about it. Well, I'll try to tell you, although I won't enjoy the telling very much. However, somebody else will be sure to tell you if I don't, and maybe get things crooked. So here goes to tell you just what happened. To begin with, when school reopened in September, Syriac Boat came to school. You don't know Syriac, of course. He is a French-Canadian boy, and belongs to that wretched little settlement called St. Anne, about six miles back in the country. You remember we went through it on our wheels last summer, and you said you thought it the most poverty-stricken place you'd ever seen. It's just as poor as it looks, and so are the people in it. Syriac's family is about the poorest of them all, but it seems that Syriac is ambitious in spite of his poverty. He had gone to the little third-rate school at St. Anne until he had learned all the teachers there could teach him, and then he determined to attend Lockport School for a year before trying the entrance examination for the Dayton High School. How we sixth-grade boys howled when we found that Syriac meant to try for the scholarship for which we all meant to compete ourselves. He didn't look as if he could spell C-A-T-Cat, so Bob Morrison said, and so we all thought. But it was a big mistake to judge Syriac by his looks, as we soon found out. But there is no use talking, Jack. He did look funny. He was a tall, lanky fellow and looked all wrists and ankles, for his trousers and coat sleeves were four inches too short for him. And such patches! Patches everywhere, and of every color and size, and never a vestige of tie or collar, of course. He had a great shock of whitish-colored hair, a long, brown, stolid sort of face, and big, inky black eyes. Sleepy-looking chap, I thought. But I tell you, a fellow would have to get up early to get ahead of that same Syriac. His brains were all right, there wasn't a doubt of that. To be sure, he talked English with a fearful accent, and when he tried to read Latin, he convulsed the class, and even Mr. Unsworth had to look the other way. But just give Syriac pen and ink and a clean sheet of fool's cap, and accent didn't count there. In the monthly examinations at the end of September, Syriac came out ten percent ahead of everyone, even of Bob Morrison and your humble servant, who used to think themselves the flowers of the flock. It was a pretty stiff dose for us all, and especially for Bob and me. Here was this backwoods fellow whom we had despised and made fun of, with his patched clothes and fronty accent and his big, brown, work-hardened paws, walking off with all our class honors as easy as rolling off a log. We were surprised and mad at the same time. Indeed, all the sixth-grade boys felt cut up, except the stupid ones who hadn't expected to mark high anyhow, and were just as glad to see Syriac take us top chaps down a peg or two as not. But mad or not, 
there was no changing the fact that there at the head of Mr. Unsworth's report was the name of Syriac Bout, with ninety-eight per cent to his credit. It rankled in our minds a bit, Bob's and mine, and we were just asking for a chance to pay Syriac back in some way. Mean? Yes, of course it was mean. Dirt mean. I see that now, and you'd better believe me I feel ashamed of myself. But I was so sore just then after getting beaten in examinations that I was a regular cad. We didn't have to look long for a chance to play a trick on Syriac. There was one ready to hand. Syriac, of course, couldn't walk six miles to school every morning and then home again at night. So he rode on a pony that looked as if it might have come out of the ark as far as age went. We found out that he had worked all haying and harvest with a man over at Swampscott in payment for the nag. It was so old that it was gray in spots, and it was blind in one eye, and lame in one leg, and so thin you could count its ribs. Altogether, I'll bet a hat, Jack, you never saw such a specimen in your life, and we boys tormented the life out of Syriac about his sorry steed. Syriac always took our personal slurs and jokes with perfect good humor, but it made him mad when we sneered at Napoleon Bonaparte. That was the pony's name. He was as fond of Nap as if he had been a beauty, and took just as much care of him. When he came to school in the morning, Nap was carefully tethered where he could get grass and water and shade. At recesses, Syriac would go and talk to him, and at night he mounted him and ambled off up the road as proud as a king. Well, Bob and I thought it would be a good joke on Syriac to take old Nap away and tether him some place where he couldn't find him when school came out. Syriac would have to trudge home for once, and it would give him a jolly good scare if he thought his precious horse was lost. So one day when school went in after the last recess, Bob and I hung back a bit, and as soon as everybody had disappeared, we rushed to where Nap was tied. Bob untied his rope and led him up a lane in the woods for about a quarter of a mile, coming out where that little bridge crosses the Lockport Millbrook on Simon Crossway's land. You've been there, Jack, on trouting expeditions, and you know how deep and steep the banks are, and that there isn't any railing on the bridge. Bob tied old Nap good and solid to a birch tree, and we left him there, nibbling peacefully at the grass. Nap was always eating, but it never seemed to fatten him any, poor old fellow. We hurried back to school then, and slipped in unnoticed while Mr. Unsworth was hearing the junior botany. When school came out, Syriac shambled off to Nap's usual haunt, but, of course, no Nap was to be found. Wasn't Syriac in us stew? Not that he made a fuss, you know. That wasn't Syriac's way. But anyone could see that he felt worried. He hunted around everywhere near, but he didn't find Nap, and finally he started to walk home. Some of the boys told him that Nap must have got loose and gone home, and Syriac looked as if he were trying to believe it, but couldn't. I suppose he knew as well as the rest of us that poor old Nap hadn't enterprise enough to start off anywhere alone. Bob and I hung around until all the other chaps had gone home. Then we started, intending to bring Nap back and tie him up in the old spot. Wouldn't Syriac look bewildered when he came and saw him in the morning? He will worry all night about him when he finds he isn't home, said Bob. Then we chuckled as if Bob had said something witty. But when we got to Crossway's Bridge, we didn't chuckle. No, Jack, my boy, we didn't feel a bit like it. Poor old Nap had strayed over to the bridge, giving his rope a twist around another tree at the edge as he did so, and then, owing, I suppose, to his blind eye, 
He had fallen over the bridge, and there he hung, dead as a doornail. Well, Jack, I simply can't describe how Bob and I felt, so I won't try. And we were thoroughly scared, too, for we thought there'd be an awful fuss and likely as not the mischief to pay all round. There was nothing we could do. Poor old Knapp was dead, beyond doubt, and we couldn't even haul him up. "'So the only thing is just to leave him here and cut for home,' said Bob. "'We can't bring Knapp back to life now.' "'I wish we'd never touched him,' I said, disconsolately. "'Oh, so do I,' growled Bob. "'But what good is wishing going to do? "'He wasn't worth his pasture anyhow.' "'So home we went, the cheapest feeling boys in Lockport. "'I tell you, Jack, I put in a miserable night. "'I was sure we were in for a scrape.' and I felt sorry for Syriac, too. I hope, old fellow, that you'll never be in such a mixed-up state of conscience as I was that night. Well, next morning Syriac was at the school bright and early looking for Nap. He had walked all the way from home. He hunted all the morning, and at last he found him. Nobody knows how he took it, but when he reappeared at the school he looked awfully cut up. Bob wasn't in school at all. He had left Lockport that morning for a week's visit with some cousins at Swampscott. He'd been invited there for some time, but if it hadn't been for old Knapp's hanging himself, I'll bet Bob would never have gone holidaying in term time. I must say I thought it shabby of Bob to leave me to face the music alone. But for a wonder, there wasn't any fuss. It never seemed to enter into Syriac's head to blame any of the schoolboys for kidnapping his pony. Instead, he declared that it was Leon Poirier who had been hired at Crossways all summer, and who had an old grudge against Syriac. Leon had left Lockport that very day to hire with a man ten miles up country, and Syriac believed that he had revenged himself upon Knapp before going. Mr. Unsworth did hold a bit of an investigation, and asked us all in turn if we had tied Knapp at the bridge. I said no with the rest. It was true enough, for Bob had done the tying. But there's no use in talking, Jack. I felt mean, mean, mean. Well, Syriac had no pony to carry him to school now, but the third day after the inquest, as the boys called it, he turned up again, looking tired to death, for he had walked the whole way, and he wasn't at all strong. That night going home, he got well drenched in a shower, and there was no Syriac at school the next morning. Three days later, John Carslake's hired boy, Jerry, brought word from St. Anne that Syriac Bort was down with pneumonia. Ammonia, Jerry called it, as a consequence of getting so wet that day, and the doctor didn't think he would live. Bob was back at school by this time, and he just turned as white as a sheet when George Carslake told him the news. I guess I did, too. When Bob and I got together, we were as solemn as crows. If Syriac dies, said Bob miserably, it will be our fault, or mine, I should say, since I was most to blame. As for me, I felt too wretched to say anything. I wouldn't live over those next four days for anything. But at last, we heard that Syriac was getting better. Talk about reprieves to condemned criminals. Bob and I know just how they feel. We got together that day at recess and had a consultation. "'Now, well, what is to be done?' said Bob. "'Syriac's getting better, but he can't come back to school if he has to walk. That is plain. "'We've just got to get him another pony in place of nap, that's all,' I said. 
I've been saving up to buy a bicycle, and I've got fifteen dollars. I'll give that. I'd rather have a clear conscience again than all the bicycles in the world. So would I, agreed Bob. Well, I haven't any money, but I think I know a way to get some. Next day, Bob turned up with twenty dollars. He looked glum and triumphant by turns. How did you make it out, Bob? I asked. Sold Rex, answered Bob, briefly. He didn't say another word, and I didn't either. I knew what a sacrifice Bob had made. Rex was the very apple of his eye. He was a beautiful Gordon Setter pup that Bob's Uncle Henry had given him, and every boy in Lockport had envied Bob that dog. We had to hunt around for a couple of days before we found a pony for our price, but we finally bought one from Stephen Cook over at White Bay. He was a bit old and slow—the pony, I mean, not Stephen—but he had two good eyes and was worth a dozen naps. Then Bob and I took him over to St. Anne and went to Jerome Woods. Syriac's mother met us at the door. She was a great, big, fat, jolly-looking woman, and she couldn't speak a word of English. Bob and I had quite a time making her understand that we wanted to see Syriac, but we succeeded at last, and she towed us into the little bedroom where he was lying, looking so thin and white, with his big, black, hollow eyes, that I felt choky. You should have seen his face light up when we went in. How glad he was! And he began to ask questions about the school and Mr. Unsworth and the classwork so fast that we couldn't keep up with him or get a chance to tell him what we came for. But at last his mother jabbered away in French a bit to him, and I suppose she told him he mustn't talk too much and hurt himself, for he got quiet, and then Bob began. He told the whole story, plump and plain, and I helped him out here and there when he got stuck. Syriac listened, with his eyes getting bigger and bigger, and when Bob told him that we had brought another pony for him in Knapp's place and asked him to forgive us, he gave a great swallow. "'That's all right, boys,' he said, and it was all he ever did say. He tried to get out something about thanking us, but we stopped him right up and told him that if he could forgive us for one mean trick and for having nearly killed him, it would be for us to thank him.' But we went to see Syriac often after that, and as soon as he was well enough to come back to school, we sixth-grade fellows gave him a rousing reception. Of course the story got out, but nobody said much to Bob and me, not even Mr. Unsworth, although of course it made lots of talk in the school. Syriac is head of the class again, and of course he'll get the Dayton scholarship. Nobody will grudge it to him, for he is a regular brick, and we all like him, and he can talk English and read Latin quite well now. I shall tell you more general news in my next letter, when I won't have Syriac and his pony so much on my brain. We all miss you in class this winter, and wish you were back. Yours fraternally, Will. End of section 16